You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking today with Dr. Yerk Valcha, Executive Director of the Center for Faculty Excellent at Texas Women's University. Dr. Valcha is an expert in faculty development and computer-assisted language learning, among many other things. I got the impression in looking through Dr. Valcha's background and areas of interest that he is quite the Renaissance man, holding a doctorate in comparative literature from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Dr. Valcha is quite knowledgeable knowledgeable in film and literature. He spent a good part of his adult life as an associate professor of modern languages and director of the Language Resource Center at Ohio University in Athens. And adding to that, he is the author of Blood Obsession, Vampires, Serial Murder, and The Popular Imagination. Yes, you heard me right. That is the title. Welcome, Dr. Valcha. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be a great interview. You have what, on first glance, looks like an interesting contrast of backgrounds for us to discuss today. From a more conventional but very, very valuable role in supporting the professional development of educators to perhaps a bit more unconventional area in that one of your last classes for Ollie was called the Weimar Murderers and Postwar Cannibals. So I can't wait to begin talking about that, but first let's talk about uh, perhaps your more conventional side. What is the mission of the Center for Faculty Excellence at TWU? Well, good thing I have it memorized. <laughs> it's a big mission, and so I would summarize it as a hub for professional development activities, providing resources, support, and inspiration for the development and advancement of faculty of all ranks in all career phases as teachers, scholars, mentors, and leaders. That's quite a mission. It's quite a mission and quite a mouthful. It is. Yeah. So the center, what we do really in is we promote innovative educational practices that lead to more engaged teaching and we help professors honing their skills on a continuous basis because our students change, mm -hmm. our target audience, and sometimes I think it behooves us well to look out for the audience and see how we really, our subject matter, no matter how good we are, right. are we able to bring it across. And if we are not, we need to adjust it. I would imagine with times changing and technology changing that in order to be an effective communicator with teachers, there must be something that can help teachers to keep up with the times, like your center. Yeah, and teachers nowadays or professors are faced 
with a lot of demands on them. Mm -hmm. yeah, so the, the professor that only shows up twice a week to teach a class, I don't think they exist anymore. We, or I see it in my colleagues that there's a lot of stuff going on. Students have different needs, committee work, this, that, and the other, and mm -hmm. people need time or help managing that time. So they remain good at what it is they're doing and don't feel too crushed by all the demands. So we try to provide them with technological solutions sometimes or just ideas, best practices, having them talk to each other, creating a community where people realize, oh, I'm not the only one who is facing a problem, but that we get people together. Especially now with online teaching, a lot of people, they don't come to offices or we, we don't have the, the old faculty dining room where people would just hang out. So that was one of the, the charges for the center to make sure that people get back together and talk about teaching and what it is they're doing in their daily life, feeling very isolated. How wonderful that the university has a center to support like that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that was the idea. I am the founding director, but when I came, that was one of the ideas that faculty expressed themselves, that they said, we want a center like this. And I had worked at different universities before. I started out in language and technology, and then I kind of broadened my horizon that the longer I had been doing that, I realized it's also, it's not just telling people, here's a good piece of software. And people do crave to get together and talk about what it is, what it means to be teaching nowadays a newer generation of students, and what makes their job easier without cutting corners. Mm -hmm. yeah. and so we found that often just having a discussion, a lunch and learn, as we call it, bringing people together, helps a lot for people to realize, ooh, I'm not alone facing these problems and we can learn from each other. I would guess too that, particularly for a new teacher, they might not even really be able to identify what their problems are until they start talking to some of their colleagues and then realize, yes, <laughs> that's dare. my problem. Yeah, that's if they dare. I yeah. mean, that's the other thing that we have this word for graduate students, imposter syndrome, where people think, oh, I'm really not that good, and one day somebody will come and say, I shouldn't be here. Yeah. And I yeah. think it translates into our professional life, too. It's not, now I've got the PhD, and hey, mm -hmm. I'm a hot shot. I think we carry this with us for a long time. We are honest with ourselves. Absolutely. And a lot of people do have, even if they talk to colleagues, maybe they don't want to talk to colleagues because they think, if I say something, they will look at me and say, what? You don't and know? <laughs> yeah, you don't know how to do that. We all know yeah, how to yeah. do that. Or at least that's what we imagine. So yeah, we sure. together and say, no, we are all pretty much in the same boat, you know, if we're honest. And especially, we do a new faculty orientation. I try to extend it and say, let's have a new faculty cohort where we meet occasionally and just say, how are you doing? You know, how were your first weeks? Or what... Mm -hmm problems are you running into, or what successes do you have? That also helps to say, hey, that's great, you know, seem to be doing well, just to hear this every now and then. So not everything is, sometimes people think, oh, a center for teaching and learning, that's punitive, you know, it's like, you're no good, go check in with Dr. Here. So it's the other way around. Yeah. So we, wanna, we wanna make sure that people come equipped and are aware of 
certain trends and best practices and things that have been proven to be useful and help our students in the end. That's another thing. We are, or I see our job as helping our students succeed. And if we don't use, if you don't have a good repertoire or a toolbox, you might miss out on certain learners. So. That sounds so incredibly helpful. It sounds like something we need in every area of life. Yeah. A center like that where we can go regardless of what we're doing in life. That's great. Do you have any initiatives or projects that are going on now that you have scheduled or that are uh, coming up for the next semester? Yeah, yeah, the fall is just around the corner. Mm, it is. We're gearing up now for the new faculty orientation. We have the lists now who's coming, so I reach out to everyone individually and invite them quarterly and say this is not just mandatory, it's going to be fun. <laughs> so I'm also charged right now with assessing and redesigning the delivery of our what we call gateway or predictor courses in order to support and facilitate success, retention and the graduation rates of our underrepresented minorities and first-generation college students. Hmm. Yeah, it's very important because we opened the doors very wide now to higher education, but not everybody comes well-equipped. How do you catch people? Or how do you make sure they don't get disillusioned or disappointed in their first semester when they are not doing so well, that they don't wander off and say, I'm not good enough? How can we keep an eye on students, help them succeed by reaching out to them, creating a personal connection, but also by adjusting our own expectations, the professor's expectations, and the way they relate the materials. So that's an interesting and important project. And our center is now also becoming more and more involved in an initiative that's really intended to help our three campuses realize our equity, diversity, and inclusion goals. And I'm serving now also as a chair of a search committee for our first instructional accessibility specialist. And it's an interesting thing because you, if you are not differently abled, yes. as we say now, you don't think about what it means to look at a website when your eyesight is not that great. You know, People learn how to maybe create something in a learning management system and they say, oh, I throw a picture in here and a little video over there and it's really engaging. But there are students, of course, that cannot see or they have difficulties clicking on things. So there are certain things we need to know how to integrate and make standard so that everybody has the same kind of access to the learning resources as much as possible. Yeah, that's terrific because I can see where that would really disadvantage someone because at this point we all think how simple it is to go to whatever is available online, click a link, listen to this, watch that, do whatever. Yeah. And the university, of course, is not just teaching, in a way, teaching and learning. It's how do you get in there? How do you make that the people who apply, there are certain documents we all need to fill out, and many of these things are now online, and if you cannot see well on a screen and you cannot fill in the PDF forms and so on. So that's, that's something we look out for now. We want to make sure that people have access on all levels. You know, First of all, getting through the door and then having access to the right learning resources and the right mentors and people who keep an eye on them and not just say, oh, thanks for coming. Thanks for plunking down your tuition and now good luck. 
So the populations you reach out to are pretty broad. It's not just yeah. a faculty. Now you're reaching out to these well, students as well. In a way, because it, it's all interconnected. You know, mm -hmm. I, I kind of always imagine this machinery where there's certain corks, all they need to be greased and well-oiled and work together. And faculty mm -hmm. need to be aware of what it is their students are facing. So you mm -hmm. can be the best teacher and you say, I made this brilliant handout or I put together this video. But if you don't subtitle it, the hard of hearing student, what good is the best video ever if exactly. they cannot hear what's being said? So it's just a simple example now. But, and that's how we come in as a Center for Faculty Excellence. I draw on other resources all around campus. I make sure that faculty are aware where to turn to if they face certain obstacles. And I think that's a big thing of the job, to, to be aware or to be ahead of the curve and say, hey, this is what's coming down the pipeline, we, we better get ready. So I try to then disseminate it and get people energized and motivated and explain to them what it is and why we are doing these things. So they don't get the idea, oh, there's another thing you want me to do. So I often find that the first reaction is that people might say, I'm already busy. I'm already doing these things. So you need to explain and say, this is not just because I'm standing on a soapbox, but because it really has an effect on how students learn and how they will navigate through the system here and how we can help them. And perhaps make them less busy by being more effective in what they're doing in the first thing. place. Yeah, that's yeah. another thing that I always tell them. You know, I understand that you're busy, but there may be ways to make it easier for you right. if you would just try them. You and know. you have an interesting list of certifications and backgrounds behind you that help you to do this. I've been around the block. Yes, you have. <laughs> I lived abroad, and I, as I have a slight accent, as you might have noticed. <laughs> and so I grew up in Germany, and I went through the German university system before I came over here but I also I'm always trying to hone my skills as I said and I'm a principal fellow of the UK Higher Education Academy and I'm also the holder of the ACUE certificate in effective college instruction and these are my never-ending attempts to stay on top of things and then trickle down these new insights to my clientele our professors and now I've implemented and promoted the the ACU certification as well as the HEA Professional Standards Framework across our TWU campuses to improve and to also assess student success. That's terrific. Now we have several cohorts. We are on a third cohort for the ACUE certification and it's top-notch best practices how do you teach? You have a leadership and support program, I understand. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm just now. amazed at all you have going on. Well. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's really terrific. Yeah. But leaders or deans, chairs, people who move up for the administration, they started out as professors, and now suddenly, yesterday, the people next door were your colleagues. Now you're supposed to be their boss. and It's a big so step. You need some... Some guidance. That's right? right. Some people are born leaders, yeah. or they think they are. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody they can are. stand a little bit of that's support and improvement yes. and suggestion. I think that's marvelous. Sometimes it's just fun to get together and say, oh, you know what happened? And someone say, oh, yeah, you know, this is how I handled it. And it, it gives people more, you know, I can't think of the word now, 
security, self-security, sure. something yeah. like this, where you say, oh yeah, okay, I'm not the only one. Give them some confidence. Confidence, that's yeah. the one I'm looking yeah. for. Now, as having put my own children through college, I have to say that you have an initiative now that very much sounds wonderful and near and dear to my heart with the collaboration you're doing with the textbooks, authors, and associations. Yeah, the TAA, the Textbook and Authors Association, I discovered it early. A colleague actually came and said, oh, you know, we should check this out. And I thought, why don't we start a writing program Yeah, and encourage faculty. They have the three pillars of the faculty existence is teaching, research, service. And so the research often, that's the hardest part to find the time to sit down, do your research, do your scholarly work, do your writing. Takes a lot of time. Takes time and takes good management skills. You know, Absolutely. Because that's always from my own example and I hear this from other colleagues, that's the most intricate thing and so you keep postponing it. Say, exactly. oh, yeah, first I need to grade my papers, first I need to prepare for class and eventually I get to write an article and some people never get around to writing the article and have stuff piling up maybe former presentations. Mm -hmm. So trying to help people to find ways to get published, to sit down and then also what do I do with the article, where do I take it and it's a very interesting program. We've done this now for the fourth year. We're entering our fifth year and I think a lot of people profited from it. Sure, so you help them with the steps, all right, write it, Basically. and then you can do this yeah. to publish it, contact this, get yeah. this done, this and is your timeline. we bring an outside speaker, and nice. they, they, we can offer the memberships, that's a, kind of a package deal. The center is the hub, or the, the catalyst, things started, yeah. and to connect people with the right sources, and so that's what I'm good at. I prick up my ears and say, what's out there, what... What's affordable? <laughs> what can I offer well, to our Affordable, <laughs> that's what made my heart skip a beat when mm -hmm. I heard that you encourage instructors to adapt resources such as textbooks or other resources that might be free for students because that's very expensive. It's very that's expensive and we are dealing with a clientele, many universities now, unless you're Harvard and you have a lot of an endowment and maybe you can hand out, I don't know, big scholarships. A lot of students that are entering now have big financial burdens, not That's only right. tuition, but also they gotta eat, right? They gotta live somewhere. So can we ease this financial burden by saying we counteract some of the horrendous increases in textbook mm -hmm. uh, costs, which go sometimes into the hundreds yes. for one class. Yes. And so there's a trend now, it's not that we invented it, but there, there's now a trend that people say we want open educational resources. If we all pull together and share our resources or our materials, then we can offer them to our students for free, which means that they now don't have to worry about getting a second job. That's they so can say, I can save some money, important. You know, and I don't have to run to Walmart or McDonald's right. or wherever I have to work another shift so I can buy textbooks. And so we are just embarking on this, and we are trying to encourage instructors to adopt, adapt, or even create their own textbooks and resources that are free for students. And I think it's a great way 
for faculty to also collaborate on, on a worthwhile and very timely project. Yeah, and it goes back to the, how do you bring faculty together that are basically, we're all doing the same job, but we are sometimes very isolated in doing it. And I think people profit from talking to each other and saying, hey, can we coordinate our effort and not reinvent the wheel every single person? We are all teaching intro to biology, for example. Maybe there's a textbook out there. Or if we say we can't use that because we have very special curriculum, maybe we can say Bob, chapter one, Susan, chapter two, Fritz, chapter three, and so on. And then we all yeah. pull together and we have a reader just for our students because we are the ones who know what we want to teach them. And we avoid them going out buying a textbook. What often happens is you buy this expensive textbook and then someone says, Okay, we do chapter one and four, and then you can put and it aside. And that's it. Yeah. And then you can trade it back in for a fraction of the cost. I think that's yeah. an incredible initiative. Yeah. Well, a little change of subject here, but I have to say I am extremely impressed by your knowledge of languages. How many languages do you speak? On a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> German and English. My French like is getting very more. rusty. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I'm a comparatist. Yeah. So in order to do comparative literature, you need to be able to read sure. at least different literatures and then say, hey, can I see any trends there? What did the Germans do during the Romantic period? Mm. Does it coincide with the English tradition? I had French in school, actually. Then later I, I needed to do a classical language, so I picked up Latin, which is wonderful. Great basis, I'm telling everybody listening, tell your kids, take Latin, because it even helps with computer programming. It's so, I realized... It's all the roots of words, isn't it? The roots, but it's also the beauty of how logical it is. Oh. How things need to, to be just right, you know, mm -hmm. otherwise they don't make sense. It reminds me of, of doing HTML or JavaScript, where you think, oh, I got it, but you miss one comma or one letter, and the it's computer says, not working. So yeah. for me, it, I must say, I'm also a language person in a way. You know, in Germany, we grow up with English, at least, and then if you go to a higher school, French at my time, now I guess Spanish would be also offered. And I did not take Latin at the time thinking, oh, that's for lawyers and medical people, but later, just, You I couldn't know, stay away, could I, you? Well, you know, it, it always bugged me in a way yeah. that I shied away, and I thought right. I should at least give it a try, and then I really got into it. <laughs> I read that you also know Norwegian. Ah, yeah, there's an interesting story. We used to travel to Sweden often. And I was teaching in a Germanic and Slavic language department, and I thought, oh, I should learn some Swedish, you know, just to be nice. But it never worked out, because the only Swedish instructor we had was always kind of teaching parallel to when I'm teaching. And one day the Norwegian instructor said, why don't you sit in my class? <laughs> it's so similar. <laughs> oh, all right. So I speak some and read. It's, I'm bad at reading. I've never been to Norway as of yet. That's a good I'm thing to collection. put on your bucket list. <laughs> Are, is everyone listening to that yeah. now? And middle high German, now that piqued my interest. I studied Germanistic <laughs> German studies and part of it is that you have to do some medieval literature. And another thing is, yeah, it depends always on the professor, you know, how they bring it across. It could be boring or you get mm -hmm. someone who is really motivated and tells you tales of chivalry and shining knights and, and so I had a very good 
professor and a very good peer group, and we really got into it. And so that's what appealed to me with the language. I thought, oh my goodness, that's all the stories of the knights and the chivalry and the heroes. Yeah, but it's also connected to my interest in romanticism and then horror literature. You know, it's Mm -hmm. all the the longer you do this, the romanticists in England and Germany. They were really interested in medieval studies. If you look at Gothic novels, it all goes back on people living on castles. So there were these connections. So is that what got you interested into the next area that we are (laughs) slipping into? and conventional area? Yes, your more literary side. Yeah. I mean, no. is that where <laughs> no, that these went are on? connections I saw later, you know, where I thought, ooh, how interesting that the Romanticists had a fable for medieval tales and chivalry and kind of rediscovered the Middle Ages. But my interest in horror and fantastic literature, I don't know, it was innate somehow. When I grew up, we had these little weekly fantastic novels that you could buy. Here you would say pulp novel or dime novels. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they were very popular. And I had a neighbor kid who was a couple of years older, and he gave me his hand-me-downs of this series about a guy who discovered that there were demons and werewolves out there, and he now made it his mission to hunt them down. And... So I read this, and somehow I always thought, oh, wow, how exciting is that, you know? <laughs> so study literature, I realized there is a, a real tradition and that you can, what I thought was a hobby horse, actually <laughs> turned into a profession, domestic interest. In fact, you won an award from your Blood Obsession Vampire Serial Killers and Popular Imagination. You received the 2006 Lord Ruthven Award. Yes, I did. Which is very interesting, just to let our listeners know. It was the best nonfiction work about vampires. And Lord Ruthven, I looked up to see who Lord Ruthven was, and it said it, he was the first mention of vampires in literature. Is that correct? Probably the first vampire in print in a real story that was not folklore. Yeah, that's an interesting story. It was written by a man called John William Polidori, the vampire, and that was around 1819. And this Lord Ruthven was pretty much based on Lord Byron. Yeah, so they, No kidding. And John Polidori was Byron's doctor and probably suffered very much under his boss and kind of got his revenge by <laughs> portraying him as this nefarious, undead person that sucks the lifeblood out of people. So learn how to write. (laughs) Yeah, but he also kind of borrowed a bit from Byron because the real, it appeared in print much later, it was only a fragment, but Byron had a short story, or he started a short story and had a character, Augustus Darwell. So scholars believe that that really was the the seed for the literary vampire, at least in English. Mm or European literature, and that Polidori kind of borrowed the idea and expanded on it. And the irony of the story is that when it was published, it was not published under Polidori's name. I don't remember all the details. Maybe there was no name at all on it, but people thought it was George Gordon, Lord Byron's work. And so they bought it. (laughs) Byron, of course, said, I want nothing to do with this. But it kind of gained a certain notoriety. There's actually a movie by Ken Russell called Gothic that 
people, your listeners, our listeners might be interested in. Yeah, I'll have to check that out myself. And it kind of describes the night where Mary Shelley, her husband Percy, Bish Shelley, Byron and Polidori were all hanging out together and on a bet basically said, let's write a mysterious or a horror story. And so Frankenstein grew out of it. The only real work that has real literary value maybe it's know, an, an incredible ones. story yeah, to yeah. read the original story is so wonderful or 18 year old at it's the amazing yeah. yeah now this award the lord ruthven award came from the international association of the fantastic arts right what a name i love that yeah well see i'm not the only one reading <laughs> this it was interesting because it was the award for the best non-fiction work about vampires but I don't know how much competition there was. <laughs> oh, now, now. I had no connection to this association before. That I must just have found the book, read it, and somebody said, let's give him this award. Well, that's impressive to me. Back, you know? Oh, I, I think that's attended. incredible. Basically, what they do, they have one or two conferences per year, and that's where people get together who are really interested in fantastic literature. Have you gotten more involved with them since this? I or? must admit, yeah. no. Okay. No, because my... Yeah, I don't know. Just never happened. I never really thought about it. Is this more just something that you enjoy doing on your own? I kind of moved away with my uh, sojourn or, or my, my meandering into more professional development, instructional technology and helping faculty develop their skills. I moved away from the literary circuit and it became more of a hobby horse. And that's how I got into Ollie about this. <laughs> what a great segue, right? Because your Ollie course with the Weimar murderers and the post-war cannibals, which is also an incredible title, deserves a mention. So could you discuss that? It's a great title, and of course it was picked to arouse the interest. And it yeah. did, it was very yeah. effective. But I started out in Ollie two, three years ago, I don't know. I've been doing it now, yeah, I think three years ago. I did something on vampires in film and fiction, so that's how I started out. And I still like the topic, but it's, like I said, I'm, I'm too busy doing other stuff. So I mainly do pleasure reading nowadays, but I don't want to be completely disconnected. And Ollie is a very, very thankful audience. And I'm a thankful teacher because I don't have to do any grading. I don't have to assign homework. I don't need... These are very good students because, first of all, they sit there because they really want to. And you don't have that often in, in other classes where people sit because it's a requirement and then you have to grade them and then they yeah well you know it opens up a can of worms it's not as pleasurable as one might think whereas with Ollie you go there you come prepared and you have people who say wow maestro give us more give us we love it give us more yeah, and that is what they're saying I, well thank you I've been teaching continuing education for quite some time at first as a graduate student because it it there was some extra money in it, but I've always liked having such a mixed bag of people coming from all different directions because they had a common interest, either learning a language so they can travel. That's how I started out, or now that I pick more literary topics, I can do my hobby horse, yeah, and I can introduce people to new ideas, and I got good reviews because people also say, wow, you kind of provide us with a lot of background and then point out connections that we wouldn't 
be able to see or would just never think about, you know, the developments in medical history and folkloric vampires and why did they really become famous at a certain point in history and then with the advent of film, the first stories that filmmakers turn to stories about fantastic occurrences and beings, you know, and it has to do with the new medium and what you can do, you know, you can do superimpositions and, and things like this that, so what formerly you could only imagine now could be depicted. So I, I have an interest in that. I enjoy it. So along with being a very literary man, I've read you're also a very good cook and a pop music historian. <laughs> That's hints the Renaissance man reference from the beginning. A title I bestowed upon myself. <laughs> well, it's a good one. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, a little bit. I mean, people like music, right? And yeah. Some people, they say, I put on the radio and it doesn't matter, or I listen to country and western all day long, it's just because it's background. But I was always so, always interested in who are the people in these bands, you know? How are they interconnected? And I don't know, sometimes when you look at certain trends like glam rock in European music, mostly British, you know, there was a big influence. We got our music from Britain, from America, you know. Well, the and Beatles went to Germany first, the didn't lived they? Beatles in Germany for a while, yeah. 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 So, and, but then when you look at some of it, you realize the Beatles were, of course, very special, and, and so are the Stones, but there are a lot of pop groups where you realize, now with the boy bands, you know, that's not really my field, but you saw that things like this, a product that was really run by a songwriter team, and then they cranked out all these hits and they just say, well, I'm going to give this song to so-and-so, I'm going to give this song to this band, you know. But you realize there was really a clearinghouse of pop songs. <laughs> and you thought when you were younger, oh, wow, Slade are so different than Susie Quattro or well, Slade did their own song. But then you suddenly realize some of these songs were all written by the same composer team. And he just said, we're going to we'll distribute this. Give this to and, that. And, and, and so discovering these little connections, I always enjoyed this. And Do you and, do that with the music today? You know, I'm kind of disconnected with the music today. It's, well, it sounds like an interesting Ollie class area to <laughs> me, actually. <laughs> well, it might be, maybe, might be someone else's turf already. Yeah. Vampires and pop music. Vampires and pop music, yeah. I don't think there's that. No, it's a different thing, but I like it. Maybe I'm, I'm a collector, you know, that's how it all gets tied together. You start digging a little and then you want to find out more. And as I said earlier, I have an inquisitive mind and I think, wait a minute, you know, I've heard this name before. Oh, wait, didn't he produce so-and-so? And then you realize that there, there's a certain handwriting. You know, Bert Bacharach, for example. I really got into Bert Beckerack after a while when I realized that all these different artists recorded his songs and but when you kind of pay close attention and you that there's some kind of I don't know essence in there that pops out when you train your ear and you say, Hey, that's a Bert Beckerack song, even if you've never listened to it, you know, or you say somebody's copying him and I like yeah. this, you know, it's, yeah. it gives me pleasure to discover these it actually makes sense with your love of language and your ability to speak so many languages, your connection with music and the sounds and Maybe. the... I don't yeah, know. Yeah. And I like to then infuse, is that a word? Infuse sure. other people. You, yeah. know, you can talk to my daughters, they are very good. That's <laughs> terrific. 
yeah, they had access to my record collection and of course they had to sit through what I I listened to, but now they have a very wide horizon and, and I like if you kind of see connections and have something to talk about. Connections are important, as with going back to the uh, center that you run and getting the connections with teachers, so that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much, Jörg. This has been marvelous. I, you're just a very interesting person, and I so looked forward to our chance to have a conversation together. And I'm very much looking forward to whatever you plan to bring Ollie's away next because you have some interesting ideas with your classes so please it's gonna be a seminar on going back to romanticism on gothic novels Mm -hmm. and the theme of yeah flights and pursuits basically Terrific. But that's all I'm saying. Look okay. out for it. All, all right. right. Look out. Sometime We're ready. <laughs> thank you very much. It's well, been a pleasure. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Jörg Valcha. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>